You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The Brexit Party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. But what we will do is concentrate our total effort into all of the seats that are held by the Labour Party. The Brexit Party scales down its great crusade. Does Nigel Farage even want Brexit to happen? My guests Mary Dijewski and Alex von Tunzelman will discuss that and the day's other news, including Donald Trump and Recep Tayyip Erdogan's weird bromance, leaders in exile, and our affairs editor Christopher Chermak gives us a crash course in creative coalition building. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Mary Dijewski, contributor to The Independent and The Guardian, and Alex von Tunzelman, historian, author and screenwriter. We will start here in the UK, where not for the first time in his career, there has been something of a discrepancy between the vainglorious promises made by Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage and the delivery thereof. Yesterday, Farage announced that the Brexit Party, which had been going to contest every seat in next month's election, would contest rather fewer, standing down in all 300 17 constituencies won by the Conservatives in 2017. This has come as something of a shock to many Brexit Party candidates who had already spent considerable sums on their campaigns and may now have to solicit loans from that terrifically polite bloke who emailed them about Emperor Bokassa's gold. Mary, Nigel Farage has never really wanted to win, has he? He doesn't actually want Brexit to happen. He would therefore have to find a new grift and or get a job. (laughs) Well, I've always been in favour of Nigel Farage being given a peerage um, because it seemed to me that if that had happened in 2016 when it was first mooted, um, actually we might not be here today. Um, But I'm not sure about that theory that Farage didn't want to win because when you looked at him presenting his 600 plus candidates and then just a few days later saying, well, actually, uh, uh, no, we're not going to contest all those seats. In fact, we're going to contest barely half of them. Um, he did look to me as though somebody, as, as though something of the sort of lifeblood had gone out of him. He looked, he looked really a diminished character. So, you know, everybody's denying that there's any sort of deal being done between him and Boris Johnson, but it's hard not to believe that there's been something going on behind the scenes. Um, Alex, while I'm shamelessly inserting my pet theories into this conversation, do you have any time for my belief of what's gone on here is that Farage has read the applications of Brexit party candidates and knows that their chances of coming up with 600 candidates who would not prove within a matter of hours to be certifiable dingbats was was slender. Well, I mean, let's face it, uh, Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems having enough trouble with that. You make a fair point. There is, however, (laughs) nothing I would not give to read that file of Brexit Party candidate applications. I think it's probably quite special. I agree. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, the kind of question here then is going to be who benefits from this, from, you know, them setting down the Tory seats. And of course, you know, there was all sorts of speculation yesterday going on on Twitter and people kind of doing their pet theories about who this benefits. But actually, it's sort of... 
you know, despite the fact they're standing aside in Tory seats, of course, the crucial thing to remember is that the Tories aren't just looking to defend a majority. They don't have a majority. Indeed. They need to win new seats. And it is quite possible that if they do continue, we'll see if they do or not, to stand in Labour or Lib Dem seats, that actually, in a way, the Brexit party, by splitting the Tory vote, will actually fail to, you know, mean they can't win those seats um, which they need to get a majority. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see the rest of these candidates also disappear. They've all been told, according to uh, uh, some conservative journalists on Twitter, they've been told not to pay their deposits until Wednesday. Um, <laughs> Thursday is the last possible day. So so I think, I think we'll wait and see whether this is going to happen or not. Uh, this would all be terrifically amusing, of course, if it wasn't happening to a, an actual country in which we all actually live. Um, Mary, who do you think, if anybody, this move helps? Because as Alex correctly points out, you can make the case that it helps the Conservatives by not competing in the seats which they won last time. But you can also make the case that it doesn't really disadvantage Labour because it just splits the Tory vote in the seats where they're running. Yes, well, I think in a way that sort of says it it all. Um, Because, yes, it it takes away some of the disadvantage that there might have been had Brexit candidates stood in safe Tory constituencies. Um, but I think I think there's another aspect to this, which is that some of the response to the Brexit party stepping down in all these constituencies yesterday was fury um, on the part of some Brexit supporters who said they'd now got no one to vote for because they regard the Tory party as not Brexit, pro-Brexit enough. And they follow the mantra that what Boris Johnson is proposing, what his deal with Brussels was, this is not Brexit. Um, so but no, but nothing a... ever will be Brexit for that tendency. You could you could literally wall off the English Channel and they would still say this isn't Brexit. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. But they thought that they'd got somewhere that their vote could usefully go according to their lights. Um, and now they have a question as to what to do. And it may very well be that rather than voting for the Conservatives, they simply won't vote at all. Never mind. Um, Alex, um, Mary Mary mentioned earlier the the, the thought of Lord Farage of of wherever it would be, Brussels possibly, Mm. that's where he has spent most of his time. Um, And all of our money. Yes, he he has recently floated again this idea that he was offered a peerage by the Conservatives. Um, are Are we buying that? We have so far only Nigel Farage's word for that and as as many disgruntled Brexit Party candidates would be willing to confirm that may not be worth all that much. No, I mean, I think I read his little announcement that he's, you know, and he of course said, oh, I can't be bought. Um, so, you know, I can't be bought <laughs> with a peerage, which, you know, uh, is, is news to a lot of us. Um, I suspect he's floating that because he wants one. I think that's a hint that he's dropping. Um, whether or not he's been promised one, who knows? I mean, I wouldn't put it past Boris Johnson to do so. But I mean, I think what certainly what the um, the from people that I know Boris, I don't know Boris personally, uh, say that actually personally he detests Nigel Farage. So I That's think... That's very, very easy to imagine. Yes, it is. And I think there can only be one. And I think the chance of uh, Johnson offering him the kind of position where he could perhaps serve in a Conservative administration, which has also been talked about, you know, proper pact, is very unlikely because Johnson won't want Farage on a, on a table with him. Um, so actually perhaps it is feasible in terms of it's a way to shunt him off, give him, you know, a bauble... Um, but actually remove him really from any from any active role. I think there's a serious reason also um, why um, Nigel Farage 
maybe not exactly deserves a peerage, but might might be a good thing. He has probably single-handedly done the most to change the face of British politics and even the course of the United Kingdom um, when he set up the, the the UKIP party and campaigned so forcefully um, for the UK to leave the European Union. And I think that his... The problem for him, in a way, and for the whole country, was that our electoral system is such that UKIP and now the Brexit party, it's very difficult for them to win seats in the House of Commons, to make it genuinely representative. And so they were carving out a slice of the electorate without having any reward for it, any representation in Parliament. Or indeed having to take any responsibility by actually getting elected to things. Exactly. And when we've seen people from in the past from fringe parties be elected, for instance, the British National Party, um, to local councils, generally they managed to serve out maybe one term. Very, very few of them were re-elected because then you had that clash between accountability and the platform they were elected on and the two things weren't reconcilable. So I sort of think that um, there has to be a place for this strand of opinion somewhere in British politics. And I think for Farage to, to be given a peerage, that might be the place for it to be. Mary Dijewski and Alex von Tunzelman, thank you for joining us. We will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Emergency services in Australia have been battling more than 300 fires as severe weather fueled catastrophic conditions across the state of New South Wales. Bushfires reached within miles of the centre of Sydney, prompting an airdrop of fire retardant over parts of the city. Cooler weather is moving across much of the affected area today, though there are fears strong winds may fan some of the dozens of fires that are still burning. Many schools and universities in Hong Kong remained closed on Tuesday after protesters called for a day of traffic disruption. Much of the city's public transport has been suspended or delayed. Earlier, riot police entered several universities, firing tear gas in one to disperse the students. And Shinzo Abe's government is considering ending Japan's tax break on whining and dining expenses at large companies by the end of this fiscal year. The tax bypass was introduced as a temporary measure to soften the blow of a consumption tax rise in 2014, and it's been renewed twice already. Large companies have already cut back on blowout dinners, which some say makes the tax break unnecessary. Instead, tax relief is expected to continue for at least another two years in small companies. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Alex von Tunzelman. Well, let's look now at Bolivia, or more specifically at the peregrinations of its recently defenestrated president, Evo Morales. Morales has accepted an offer of asylum in Mexico. Mexico and as such joins that melancholy crew of exiled former leaders, those overthrown potentates who find themselves not merely out of office but out of country. It is not necessarily a career-ending setback. Some have made reasonably successful comebacks. Others, however, have been compelled 
to sulk and or wander for the rest of their natural. Alex, which of those outcomes seems more likely for Morales? Oh, it's very early to know. I mean, he's gone to Mexico, which is a very popular place for exile, especially for leftists um, in Latin America and the Caribbean. We've had, of course, Trotsky there, Jacopo Arbenz from Guatemala. Um, Didn't go well for at least one of those. No. Fidel Castro was there for a long time. In fact, it's where he met Che Guevara, um, was in a house party in Mexico City over a large bowl of spaghetti. Um, And even the Shah of Iran was there for a while. All sorts of people have been there. Um, Now, can he, from there go back. I think it's a lot's going to depend on, you know, what developments go down in Bolivia um, from here on, which at the moment is, of course, very hard to predict because it really is just happening as we speak. Um, so we'll see. But I mean, there are, of course, leaders who have gone into exile and then returned. He has said he will return with, with force and strength. So, um, so we'll see whether he can muster any of that to go back with. Mary, do you like his chances? Because in many respects, it's easier now, uh, modern technology and communications being what it is for the exiled leader to continue to have an influence at home. He doesn't have to rely anymore on sort of um, shortwave radio broadcasts and Samizdat pamphlets. He he can address his constituency, whoever that may still be, directly. Can he still have an influence? Well, I think he probably can. Um, the question is, how much of a constituency does he have and how, how much of a constituency is he going to retain in Bolivia? And that's very hard to hard to gauge because even though the election, which which was then was decreed to have been manipulated, um, the re-election, as it were, um, he didn't, he, he only just managed to win that despite what was called a wholesale manipulation. So does he have the constituency back home that he can actually use to come back? And I think that is, that, that's maybe the biggest question. It's a weird business, Alex, the, the exiled leader. Do you, do you have a particular favourite with your historian's hat on? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I have a favourite at the moment. Um, but I mean... Favourite historical favourite. historical. Then. Well, I mean, of course, you know, even, even the British monarchy uh, has, has been exiled at points. I mean, every, you know, it's, it's been a common thing to be. And I mean, you, you've certainly had some countries like Pakistan have had leaders that have, you know, been leaders, then been in exile, then come back and been leaders again. Sort of I, I remember interviewing Benazir Bhutto in London during her period of exile. Well, yeah, and she certainly would probably rank as one of the best ones if you were doing a, a table of those who've been there and back a few times. Um, the in... comeback eventually ended badly for her, however. It did. I mean, Anne Nawaz Sharif, who's been the latest to have that, uh, that strategy, is also not looking too good for him either. Um, I mean, so... You know, it's a dodgy business going and going back. I do remember I've got a rather wonderful um, book at home with pictures. Uh, it's a photo book from a few years ago, and I've given it as a present so many times. It's a, it's called Dictators' Homes, and it's got pictures of the kind of houses they. This set was up Peter York's Exxon. book, wasn't it? I believe it is actually. Yes, yes. A, a, a regular presence here at Monocle Twenty Four. Wonderful. Well, I mean, certainly there's. You know, all I can say is that I think there's very little to do when you're an exiled leader. Sometimes, apart from apparently, buy a lot of furnishings in gold and leopard skin. I mean, my answer to this question, in fact, my answer to most questions, frankly, is, is, is King Zog of Albania, who, who, who's, <laughs> who, who, whose journey into exile was, was a, a thing of uh, many splendours. Reputedly, I'm not sure how true it is that when he and his retinue arrived at the Savoy in London uh, and the porters made to lift his trunk, they remarked upon how heavy it was and asked him what was in it. And he replied, gold. Uh, he, he had travelled by train across Europe with, with half the contents of Albania's treasury. 
Well, I think um, maybe my favourite exile, well, one of them would certainly be Trotsky, who's already been mentioned, um, who fetched up in Mexico, um, not to a happy end. Um, but also, I think we sometimes forget um, Charles de Gaulle was in London. and As, as many exiled leaders have been. As many exiled leaders has been, have been. But de Gaulle apparently made himself a complete pain um, <laughs> for the for successive governments in London and through the war, where they felt that he was sort of acting beyond his um, beyond his remit, that he was making life very difficult for the alliance. Um, and then, of course, um, he rides back in splendid triumph um, after the liberation of France. Um, so, but I think there's something else about exile. Um, which is that, I mean, it's interesting how smoothly, in a way, um, Morales is, and how quickly um, his uh, flight into exile was organised and executed. Because I think it's, in some ways, it's an underused solution um, for these sort of situations. And I think that um, exile, rather than, say, house arrest, life imprisonment, trial, even execution. We're approaching the um, the anniversary of the execution of the Ceausescu's in Romania. I think exile is actually a, um, a more civilised solution in a way. The trouble is, though, Alex, with exile as a solution, and Mary is right in many respects, it's a preferable outcome, certainly for the, the overthrown leader, but you've got to find somewhere willing to take them, which isn't always an option, is it? No, and some people have sort of gone round and round um, with their bags trying to find somewhere. Um, I mean, uh, certainly in the Caribbean, when Batista fled Cuba, he turned up in the Dominican Republic for Rafael Trujillo, who was completely horrified at this kind of wimp who had left um, and immediately sort of tried to have him killed. Um, so it can be frying pan into the fire um, is definitely a danger. I don't think that's going to happen to Morales in Mexico. This seems to have been offered and arranged. I think he's probably, I mean, you know, always keep an eye out for an ice pick, mind you. Um, I don't know, boredom would be a problem, I think, though, Mary, relatively speaking, because you, you go from this life of extraordinary power and excitement, and then it's that question. I'm, I'm reminded years ago, the New York, a New York Times correspondent uh, set himself the task of trying to get hold of Idi Amin's phone number in Jeddah uh, and to find out as much as he could about the, the, the post, uh, you know, tyranny life of Idi Amin. And apparently, yeah, he just wasn't doing very much sort of like idling from, from health club to restaurant? I think boredom is obviously a, a problem if you've been in power. But for the ones who are aspiring to power, in a way it gives them an opportunity to plot their return and to and to campaign. I mean, when you when you looked um, in quite recent times, Boris Berezovsky was um, exiled and an aspiring um, Russian leader and he was in London. He made life a complete pain um, for successive governments in London. It reached the point where he was actually warned by Jack Straw when he was Foreign Secretary that if he carried on um, this high-profile anti-Putin campaigning, um, that he'd have his um, asylum withdrawn, which is an almost unheard of penalty. Um, but he made um, very high-profile and, in fact, very influential use of his exile.
Well, let's move finally along on today's news panel at an imminent meeting between two as yet unexiled leaders, specifically US President Donald Trump and his Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan. The former will host the latter at the White House tomorrow, and it seems reasonable to expect an amount of oleaginous fawning from Trump altogether at odds with the actual state of relations between the two countries. While Trump clearly regards Erdogan with a deeply creepy mix of awe and envy, Erdogan has not recently appeared altogether interested in Turkey's alleged general alliance with the West, membership of NATO and so forth. Alex, how much are you looking forward to the joint press conference? Well, I think it's sort of fascinating to watch because, I mean, this is one of those cases where really, I mean, you know, US-Turkey relationships, relationship is in a terrible state and the only thing that's sort of working is that Trump's got a soft spot for for the leader, for Erdogan. Um, he lo- big man loves a tough guy. Um, but he, of course, also, Trump has no concept at all of strategy and he can't distinguish between his own interests and preferences and those of the United States. So when he's kind of operating, I mean, you know, towards Erdogan, he... You know, he can't use that relationship in a way that perhaps could be useful. If something comes out of this that's positive for the US, that will be, I think, chance, not actually design. Um, and meanwhile, Erdogan seems to be having a wonderful time playing Trump like a cheap tin whistle um, <laughs> in the way that you sort of can. I mean, he sort of came out with this statement before he flew to Washington um, and where he sort of said... We've made significant progress on several issues despite bureaucratic and political sabotage attempts by some remnants of the previous administration. Now, way to flatter Trump is to insult Obama and, of course, to kind of imply a conspiracy theory. Trump loves those. You know, Trump is stupid. He's capricious. He's prone to flattery. He loves people to insult his enemies. And, of course, overwhelmingly, he's very vain. And Erdogan certainly sees all that. Um, Mary, further to that, Trump does clearly uh, hold Erdogan in some regard. Is that, do you think, Trump's just the usual thing we've got used to now, which is his his creepy, simpering fondness towards authoritarians generally? Or is there something in particular about Erdogan he likes? I think there's something in particular about Erdogan, and it's the same thing that he saw initially in Vladimir Putin as well, which is he sees a national leader who, in Trump's view, does his best to represent and defend the interests of his country. Um, And I think that's maybe... um, I would say perhaps one of the pluses of Donald Trump is that he does, to an extent, put himself in the place of other people's leaders. He understands what they're there for and what makes them tick, just as he obviously um, sees his own position in, in the United States. This is his philosophy to the extent that he has one that all countries should place themselves first and that the the balance of competing interests will somehow work itself out. Yes, I mean, I think when, you know, when so many of us always say, well, Trump is America first and this is sort of um, exclusive to of everybody else's interests, that's not quite true. I think he regards every country as as having an obligation to put itself first and he doesn't, he, he doesn't object, for instance, you know, he, he would expect Putin to put Russia first and Erdogan want to put Turkey first. And I think maybe some of his um, misgivings, shall we say, and his clear awkwardness um, in dealing with Theresa May when she was um, British leader, was the fact that maybe he saw a leader and a country that sort of wasn't putting itself first, that was talking about a special relationship and putting that first, rather than what 
Trump would see as putting the national interest first. Um, Alex, as, as you delineated earlier, I suspect correctly that Erdogan rather has the measure of Trump and you don't need an advanced understanding of human psychology, I think, at this point to understand what gets a result from Trump. It, it, is, it, is, it is flattery, it is paying out on his enemies, it is conspiracy and so forth. Um, what does Erdogan actually want from Trump at this point? I think that's quite an interesting question. I mean, there are various kind of technical military support and various things that's sort of going on that he wants. But in a more broad sense, it's an interesting question because there is a kind of power balance going on, a rebalancing, you know, with the EU, um, with Europe, with an international sphere and, you know, and with Russia. And, you know, Turkey has to think quite hard about where it sits in that. Um, in many, many of those kind of big power banks have you know, represent some interest for them. Um, And I mean, it's kind of a question of whether he can position himself advantageously regarding all of that. But I think he's certainly noticed that weakness and supplication does not work with Trump, that actually this show of strength does work. And I think, you know, Mary's right that Trump does sort of understand that. But the problem I think that Trump has is that he only understands that. He doesn't understand any leader that has a different mindset and nor can he understand when he's being played. Alex von Tunzelman and Mary Dijewski, thank you both. In a moment, why now is the time for creative coalitions? You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's affairs editor, Christopher Chermak, offers a crash course in creative coalition building. What is up with the global electorate? It seems everywhere you turn these days, there's another hung parliamentary election, with citizens polled in so many different ideological directions that parties have no idea who to partner with as their coalition bedfellows. The latest example comes from Spain, where Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's center-left party won a plurality over the weekend, but hardly a majority. The ideological stances of other parties make Sanchez's options in forming a coalition government next to impossible. It used to be that Belgium was the only Western nation stuck with the tag of being ungovernable, although it still holds the record for spending the longest time without a government. Now we can add Spain to a long list of uneasy coalitions, minority governments or stalled parliaments ranging from Israel to Italy, Canada to Britain. In many of these cases, parties are not up to the complex challenge. Instead, they're going back to the electorate and seeking a new vote that could provide some clarity. Spoiler alert, fresh elections rarely do. If you're looking for some optimism, I draw your attention to my home country of Austria. On Sunday, the Greens voted unanimously to enter into formal coalition talks with Sebastian Kurz's Conservative People's Party, whose partner in the previous government was the far-right Freedom Party. Such a left-right coalition would be a first in Austria's history if, and it's a big if, the two sides can set aside their differences and form a government. They might be odd bedfellows, but this is the hand that politicians are dealt these days. They'd better find a way to play it.
That was Monocle's Affairs Editor Chris Chermack, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yolin Goffan and Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Zoe Kilborn and Kenya Scarlett. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.